Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Dragana Ruguya, who is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Her interest includes sleep, circadian rhythms, and motivation. Welcome, Dragana. Hi, Gil. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So uh, I want to start with uh, one of your papers from 2018 entitled Motivation, Perception, and Chance Converge to Make a Binary Decision. Uh, in which you say we reveal a central role for chance, neuronal events, in the decision of a male flight to court, which can be modeled as a coin flip with odds set by motivational state. That's a, that's a really interesting, um, interesting area. So, so what you're saying here is that the probability of an event happening is clearly driven by motivational state, but it's not solely driven by motivational state. There is a there's a chance that gets super, superimposed on that. And uh, ultimately that both of these drive an outcome. Yes. So I guess what we're trying to say is that uh, we and other animals are not really robots. Um, <laughs> there is, there are chance events involved um, in all of our decisions. So this study started, uh, started um, from the, sort of the motivation for the study was uh, our interest in understanding motivation. So what is it that motivates animals to do something or not? Because you're always surrounded by sensory cues. For example, um, you can see a mate that, or potential mate, an another animal that you are interested in courting or not. You can see food that you know you decide to eat or not. You can mm. see a bed and not every time you see a bed, you decide to sleep. So a lot of uh, variables go into the decision of animals to do something or not. And so we wanted to understand basically how animals make decisions um, to start doing something. And so the first thing that we, um, that we found was that um, in, in male flies, so we use male flies as a model system to understand motivation and specifically we use their um, sexual behavior. And 
we found that male flies are very interested in courting um, female flies and mate, mating with them um, at first, but then after mating several times, their uh, propensity to, to go after females, their interest uh, declines. As, they're, as, they're, um, as they uh, use up their reserves of sperm and seminal fluid, they lose their interest in female. And then we explain um, how this internal state, whether they have made it or not, influence, influences their decision um, to then pursue a female. And so this is the motivational state, essentially, when you go from uh, not engaging in mating, you have, uh, or before you, before the male or naive male, let's say, before he engages in mating in a female, he has very high mating drive. And then as he um, as he engages in several bouts of, of mating, he loses the interest in female. And so we explain how that internal state biases the propensity of male to, uh, to court or not. And we explain how dopamine uh, specifically biases the chance of male mating or not. But it is not, um, it is not a, a completely deterministic thing. So it's not that every time a male that is naive, that has not made it, that every time he approaches a female, he will decide to mate with her. It's also not that every time a male that is satiated, um, even though they're generally their propensity to, to court females is, is diminished, um, it is not that that male, that there's no chance that, a, that a, an animal will go after females. So we kind of explain mechanistically what it is that the dopamine the dopamine does to kind of bias the chance of, of this happening or not. Yeah, so, so you say uh, dopamine signal desensitizes um, one of the command uh, neurons. Um, right. So, so it is, um, so the, the idea that you have some sort of a random probability superimposed on that motivational state um, would it have had some selection advantages? Uh, so, so I guess two questions. Mechanistically, uh, how does that randomness get incorporated? So the male, um, when, he, when he touches the female or taps a female, he gathers sensory information from her. Mm. And after each tap, he makes the decision whether to, to court or not. And yeah. in a high motivational state, uh, the chance that he will court is higher than if he is in a, in a low motivational state. And every time he touches the female, he gets both uh, excitatory and inhibitory inputs onto what we call command neurons, courtship command neurons, which drive the actual courtship behavior itself. And mm -hmm. so you can imagine that if you get both excitation, something driving you forward and inhibition, something sort of uh, holding you back, that you could kind of bias, right, the excitation or inhibition. And so towards more excitation or inhibition. And so what dopamine does is that it essentially um, lowers the probability that the, that the, these courtship command neurons, which get dopamine inputs, will be, or and get these excitatory and inhibitory inputs, will be inhibited 
once the male, when the, when the male touches the female, so that he has a higher chance of being excited by her. And, you know, there's yeah. a constant uh, sort of push and pull between, between um, excitation and inhibition. So essentially- Is it the, mm -hmm. is it the quantity? Is it the quantity of dopamine uh, release that ultimately determines so, what outcome? Yes. Yeah, so, so dopamine, the, the actual levels of, of dopamine are really important there. So we found uh, a small set of dopaminergic neurons that are in the brain. So you have these, you have these, what we call again, courtship command neurons. So these are neurons that drive um, sexual behavior, courtship of a male towards female. Okay, so these, these are neurons that lie upstream of motor actions that the male takes, right, when he courts the female. And we found um, in 2016, and this is the work, uh, collaborative work with uh, Crickmore Lab, and these experiments were uh, done by uh, Stephen Zhang, a, a shared student between my lab and the Crickmore Lab. Um, and what Stephen found is, first of all, established this paradigm that males get sexually satiated, that male flies get sexually satiated. Um, and then he found essentially that there, are, um, there is an input that goes from the male, male's genitals to the brain mm -hmm. to regulate the activity of, these, of, of a small set of dopamine neurons, which then gates the activity of P1 courtship command neurons. So the dopamine neurons um, are the, the specific set of dopamine neurons is, um, are, are motivating neurons. So they really, uh, you need dopamine in these neurons acting on P1. So P1 neurons receive dopamine through dopamine receptor. And you need this in order to, to drive um, sexual behavior, to drive courtship. Uh, behavior. And so, uh, yes, dopamine there, and you can actually see in the brain, if you took a brain uh, from a naive male, naive male, we mean a male that hasn't mated, and you looked at dopaminergic activity um, in this small set of neurons, it would be high. But as the male mates several times, uh, three to four times, you can see the, the activity of dopaminergic neurons going down. So that these P1 courtship command neurons are basically not pushed into this active state where they would then uh, drive behavior, sexual behavior. And I just want to say that, you know, this is something uh, that has parallels to humans. So a very yeah. famous example is from Oliver Sacks, where he, in his book Awakenings, talks about his, uh, patients that were essentially catatonic uh, just not interested in anything around them, almost dead, um, until L-DOPA came along. And this actually could be given to people because you can't give people dopamine uh, itself, you know, because of the, uh, you know, uptake blood, blood brain barrier permeability, but you can give them L-DOPA, which gets converted into dopamine. And then with that, what he saw is that basically these patients that were catatonic before just sprang back to life. And one of the uh, strongest side effects or correlates of this was their uh, very much increased um, sex drive. So, 
so clearly, you know, it's a complex um, electrochemical um, reaction, ultimately that uh, ends up in that binary outcome. Um, but um, but like you say, um, animals are not behaving robotically. There is a significant chance involved. Uh, do you think? Um, do you think that that idea would have had some selection advantages, and that is why it has continued to be the case? Um, that things are not completely deterministic, but that there is some right. prob- probabilistic uh, component. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, it certainly makes behaviors more <laughs> more interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, right. And, you know, having certain flexibility is really important, right, for behaviors. So we see that flexibility is built into systems, into various systems in various ways. And, of course, the animal, you know, you can imagine if you're a fly and you're sampling the world around you, um, that world can also change quickly. If you're, you know, yeah. around one animal, that animal could fly away and another animal could could come by. And so you're kind of forced to, um, you are forced to change your behavior sometimes um, on the fly, so to speak. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, so you have a, a related paper, uh, Recurrent uh, Circuitry Sustains Drosophila Courtship Drive uh, While Priming Itself to Satiety. Uh, you say motivations intensify over hours or days, promoting goals that are achieved in minutes or hours, causing satiety that persists for hours or days. Here we develop a Drosophila Courtship as a system to study those long time scale motivational dynamics. Um, so, so this is clearly a very long, long time scale uh, dynamic. Uh, can we explain this um, uh, with just the, the dopamine system or it's much more complex than that? So, um, so, so, so kind of just to um, break down what we're, what we're talking about here is uh, what we noticed or Stephen noticed is that after males uh, mate several times, it takes a while for them to recover their sex drive. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes several days, actually. So the question is, why is that the case? So in that paper, we discovered basically the, the mechanism through which, first of all, the dopaminergic system is informed about matings, because the question is, so how would you, you have these dopaminergic neurons in the brain um, that gate motivational states or to determine motivational states, but how do these dopaminergic neurons in the brain know if the animal has mated or not, right? And so what we found is a set of neurons, again, that I mentioned that go from the genitals of the male and go uh, project all the way to the brain where they interact with the dopaminergic uh, system. And so you actually rapidly, after the, the onset of mating, these neurons, uh, which we, which we uh, call copulation reporting neurons, uh, they <laughs> talk to the dopaminergic neurons in the brain. And um, you can rapidly uh, decrease by, by activating these neurons, these, these copulation reporting neurons in the brain, their activity can rapidly uh, diminish male's um, sex drive. Um, and so what we found is that this, this um, uh, we discovered this circuit element upstream of dopamine neurons, which is actually, so as I said, these, these neurons from the genitals go and talk to the dopaminergic system, uh, but indirectly uh, by first talking yeah. to this 
uh, sort of uh, the circuit element that we call a loop, uh, which consists of several neurons, which, which can actually kind of uh, hold activity and talk to dopaminergic neurons. And they're a little bit like, like a battery. And so you're, you're kind of gradually depleting activity in that system and in the dopaminergic system. But so, so this is a circuitry that you need to, uh, to drive high motivational state and, and courtship behavior. Um, but what is interesting in this, so again, when you think about these different timescales, the animals can rapidly uh, satiate uh, their sex drive. And then it takes them a while to recover that sex drive. And so that longer time scale, the recovery of sex drive, we found that that is because the motivational circuitry, which, which sustains um, high motivational state and, and courtship behavior, actually drives accumulation of uh, negative or inhibitory elements, which can then push the motivation low. And because some inherent... Um, uh, delay steps that are built into the system, for example, having to transcribe certain um, targets and process them, you know, put them in the membrane, et cetera. There is a delay that's introduced in the system. So you, you use electrical activity um, from yeah. the periphery to the dopamine system sort of to, to quickly drive some changes in behavior. Uh, but then you have this mm -hmm. biochemical component um, that is used to then keep the motivation state low um, after the male has made it several times. And just to, just to say, why would this even be the case is what we found is that after these males mate, say three or four times, it takes them actually several days to replenish their reserves of sperm and seminal fluid. Hmm. And so, so the you know the system is taking time to to come back to um, sort of back to uh, where it started. Exactly. You 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 say here computational modeling reproduces these behaviors uh, in physiological dynamics, generating predictions that we validate experimentally. So, we could um, there there is sufficient amount of predictability. Uh, how long it takes uh, for this this whole. Um, you know, whole sequence of activities to take place. Uh, yes, yes. So you're, you're asking how is it that the computational model can, or, or you're just remarking on how well it, it um, aligns with the experimental sort of observation. Yeah, how, yes. how well it, yeah, how will it, so is it, you know, I was wondering, you know, there, there should be a lot of individual variations, I would imagine, right? But that is not the case. Uh, well, there are individual variations, I mean, to, to, some extent, and, and you mean individual variations between animals or between um, between animals? I was specifically thinking about Freud. Yeah. So we do yeah. see, you know, th there is a certain variability in the system. Like I said, some males will get um, satiated after three matings. Some will get satiated mm. after four matings. But in general, the pr the the there is not, you know, as much variability as you might predict you know, in terms of behavior. And again, what is really interesting is that these animals, uh, their motivation is not, is, is driven by their reproductive uh, status. So they tune essentially their sex drive to their reproductive potency. So as they're, with each yeah. mating uh, that they engage in, they deplete some of their um, reserves of, of sperm and seminal fluid. 
um, and mm. you know the mating drive is going down. But also, what's interesting is that they don't directly measure the volume of fluids that they lost. Uh, we thought at yeah. some point maybe that would be the case. Maybe you sense the stretch of the ejaculatory bulb or something like that. That's not the case. They actually count the number of matings through these copulation, mm. the activity of these copulation reporting neurons. Uh, essentially, because with every if, with every um, you know mating, you deplete uh, some of some of the sperm and seminal fluid. So you use the number of matings essentially as a proxy to estimate how much fluid you have left. Mm. Obviously, this is all instinctual, right? And it's right. not like the fly is thinking about there and counting, <laughs> but somehow it knows exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. I want to touch on another paper. I know that um, you are not an author on this, uh, Diana, but it, it's sort of related and interesting. So uh, calmodulin-dependent protein kinase 2 measures the passage of time to coordinate behavior and motivational state. Mm -hmm. You say electrical events and neurons occur on the order of milliseconds, but the brain can process and reproduce intervals millions of times longer. And we present what we believe to be the first neuronal mechanism for timing intervals longer than a few seconds. This is one of your colleagues, Yeah, right? so I'm on the paper, this. but I'm not the corresponding author. So this is uh, work from um, from the Crickmore Lab, and uh, his student, Stephen Thornquist, was, uh, was the first author on this paper. Um, so, okay, so we talked so far about uh, courtship behavior, right? So the males, when they're pursuing the, the females, they have this courtship ritual where they sing to them, you know, extend their wing, vibrate the wing, sing to them, uh, tap them, lick them, etc. And then the female decides uh, whether she wants to mate or not. She pauses um, and, and they, they start mating. Once the mating starts, then there's a, a remarkably fixed duration of mating, about 23 minutes. Um, and so during this time, the animals mate and then the male dismounts, gets off and, and they go their separate way. So one question is, you know, what what determines the duration of, of, uh, of that interval of, of mating? And so what uh, the Crickmore lab, uh, Stephen Thornquist, what they found is that um, within a very small set of neurons, that determines the duration of, of copulation, there is a biochemical timer, uh, CAM kinase 2, um, which actually determines um, the duration of a very critical event within that 23-minute timer. So, so this is what I mean. If you looked, if you, so if you measured the, how long flies made, they made for about 23 minutes. But what the Crackmore lab found is that within the first, about six to seven minutes, um, or let's say for the first five to six minutes, the males, the, the male will not give up the mating pretty much no matter what you do to him. So you could threaten his life with, say, high intensity heat that will certainly kill him. He will not break up the mating. And then after about six to seven minutes, he, even with the very mild stimulus, mild heat, he he will dismount. He he will give up the mating. So essentially, mm -hmm. he goes from a very high motivational state, high propensity of sustaining sustaining the mating, to a low uh, low motivational state. And what happens is that about six to seven minutes is when he transfers his sperm to the female, mm 
So they continue mating for another, you know, after those first six minutes, seven minutes, let's say they will mate for another 16, 15, 16, 17 minutes. Okay. But that those first six, seven minutes until the sperm is transferred are really critical. Okay. And the Mm -hmm. male is in this high motivational state. So what determines those first six, seven minutes, that's what this um, ChemK2 timer does. So essentially, um, you get this, you get activation of, um, of ChemK2, which is a calcium uh, dependent, dependent kinase. And then this, this, this enzyme, it autophosphorylates, it becomes active, and it sustains its activity for about six minutes. Mm. And having high ChemK2 activity prevents these neurons from going off essentially from, from the male, from ejaculating and from switching into that low motivation state. So, so you somehow you need to sustain essentially a high level of motivation for, for those six minutes until sperm is transferred, because that is, let's say the most important event that happens during mating is, you know, that fertilization. Um, so CAMK2 essentially, um, keeps these neurons from going from going off for a certain amount of time. Um, and it does that through the, the dynamics of its um, phosphorylation and decay of that activity. So just the presence of that um, essentially provides a higher level of uh, inhibition. It, the it provides basically, basically what it does is that it prevents yeah, it, it keeps the male in this high motivation state. Um, yeah. It prevents the the sort of distracting or threatening inputs from, you know, breaking up the mating, essentially. Right, right. Yeah, and again, uh, one could speculate some selection advantages here. Um, yeah. uh, because as you say, the first five, six, seven minutes are the most important ones. And so it seemed to have adapted to uh, giving high levels of importance there, and then it progressively declines. Yes, from- yes, absolutely. Yeah. And and you know what's really interesting about this is that uh, a lot of our behaviors, if not most of our behaviors, occur on these kinds of time scales that are on the order of minutes to hours. But there's really very little, almost nothing, is known um, about the timing of those events. So, so th- that is, um, those timescales are referred to as interval, as interval uh, timescales. So, you know, neuronal activity occurs really quickly. It happens or, on much shorter timescales. And then the timing system that we know the most about is the circadian system, with, which operates on much longer timescales. So 24 hours um, or so, but, but really nothing is known about timing of events that are in between. And so I would say that this is a, you know, this is like really probably the first instance of, of a well-described interval um, timer. And this molecule, KMK2, is, is used in many different contexts. And it's one of the, you know, oldest sort of molecules that we know has operated in living systems. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll take a quick break, Ragana. When we come back, uh, we'll talk about your very interesting work in sleep loss. Okay. And that sounds good. Okay, talk to you. Thanks.
This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back, uh, Dragana. Um, you have done a lot of very interesting work uh, more recently on sleep loss. Um, there is a paper that just came out, Sleep Loss Can Cause Death Through Accumulation of Reactive Oxygen Species, ROS, in the Gut. You say the view that sleep is essential for survival is supported by the ubiquity of this behavior. The apparent existence of sleep-like states in the earliest, earliest animals and the fact that severe sleep loss can be lethal, but the cause of this lethality is unknown. So are we sure all animals sleep? No, of course, we're not sure of that because, you know, we haven't looked at all animals, but, um, you know, as as everywhere we, we look, we do see this kind of behavior. And, you know, you can split hairs and say, well, how do we know, even if, an animal is is basically not moving and not responding to stimuli during a time of of this time of disconnect that's like sleep well maybe it's not sleeping until we you know unless we have electrical activity like eeg report from that but i I don't think that that is a really good argument i think that you know some animals that are uh, simpler than us they their eegs for example would not look the same as us but the fact is that they do engage in this kind of um, sensory disconnect state where they don't move a lot. And so that's seen all over the animal uh, kingdom, kingdom in, in very simple animals. So you have, you're an animal, you have nervous system, you usually have some form of, of sleep-like behavior. Then you have a nervous system. So um, in terms of single cell organisms, mm-hmm. uh, do, do they have anything similar? I mean, they have rhythms, yes. Yeah. So you know, that there are rhythms of, of sort of activity, like higher metabolic activity, lower metabolic activity, even in single cells, you know, you have periodic events that could be seen as sort of resting uh, states. Okay. But, you know, okay. the way that we think about sleep, we think of that as in, in animals, essentially. And, and water animals like fish and, and bigger ones like whale and all of that, they all have some sort of uh, sort of sleep. Yeah, yeah, they sleep, and even animals like uh, like jellyfish um, yes. uh, have been shown to sleep. And and how about flies? <laughs> flies, yeah, they sleep, and their sleep is very similar to to our sleep. So they sleep for many hours a day, and you know the genes that that have been discovered that regulate sleep are uh, really similar uh, between flies and 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 mammals, um, and. You know, the circadian clock, which is sort of an, an important driver of sleep, was, was really uh, first uh, described in the fly. And so they're a very good model in which to study sleep um, for various reasons. You know, their lifespan is uh, shorter than, than that of many mammals. So you can do studies like what we were interested in, which is to really look at the effect of sleep loss on, on the length of life or on mm. survival. Yeah, so, so I was just uh, trying to get, so the, 
So th there appears to be sort of a, a reason from physics uh, for sleeping. Let, let me just speculate. <laughs> Correct me if, I, if you think this doesn't make sense. Uh -huh. uh, that if, if, you look, uh, if you think a biological system as a machine, it's, it's accumulating waste. And uh, sleep is really sort of a cleaning time uh, for the system to get rid of the excess waste uh, while it was operating. Is that, uh, is that fair? So there's some even kind of direct, uh, I mean, claims of, of actual toxin clearance from the brain, let's say during sleep. Um, yeah. And I'm sure that that is one of the functions of, of sleep. The thing that we, we think about is, 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 you know, the fact that animals, again, that are simpler that, that, than we are and that don't even have brains, but have very simple nervous systems, they do sleep. And so there's a possibility that there's sort of clearance, even physical clearance of certain substances, uh, even from individual cells or from tissues, but we don't yet know what that is. What we were really interested in understanding is, is sort of like what the, the question that we really asked is what, what is the um, most basic or requirement for sleep in terms of survival? So why is it that, that lack of sleep will kill you? And that doesn't necessarily explain the reason for sleep, right? It could be that when you don't sleep, just some, some adverse events occur that can kill you. It doesn't mean that that's the reason um, why you sleep. But, right. you know, it solves definitely that, that really big mystery, which is that it has been observed in various uh, model systems that if you prevent sleep, um, you, that this causes death. I mean, there, there just hasn't been, um, uh, you know, demonstration, convincing demonstration that you could prevent animals from sleeping and, and that they could survive without, without it. So this is That's what so, we found so too. Yeah, so you have two, um, at least two, uh, possibly more um, uh, experiments, right? So one in flies, one in mice, um, uh, going through a process of you. So you have a control and you have, uh, you have a, a model that, uh, that is uh, deprived of sleep for a period of time. How many days? So I guess, uh, could you talk about the fly experiment first and what you found? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so I'll, so I'll just, so basically, again, the motivation for us was to understand what lack of sleep does. Yeah. And let me just say that, you know, traditionally kind of how sleep is, is usually uh, uh, talked about is in terms of brain and the nervous system, right? So this is for, for good reasons, because you need the nervous system to go to sleep. And of course, we dream during that time. And we know that if we skip even one night of sleep, we don't feel good the next day. It's hard to think, to remember things, etc. But again, animals that are much simpler than us, they don't even have brains that have very simple nervous systems. They, they sleep and it, and it seemed to us, um, you know, that, that not all function of sleep could be, this, could be explained by these cognitive <laughs> functions, right? So, so we didn't just appear with these wonderfully complicated brains, right? So if simple animals and we have evidence that sleep emerged in earliest animals. And if this is true, then probably serves some basic function. So our idea was, we really wanted to understand then what is it that, that lack of sleep does to the body um, or, or does to the animal. And let me just say that clinical evidence shows that there's, that lack of sleep 
can lead to various diseases, which is another indication that it cannot really be all about the brain. <laughs> and so we didn't want to be married to this idea of sleep equals brain. And we thought that, okay, if something goes wrong really with animals and, and they die, then there should be some signature of um, impaired cell function or cell death somewhere in the body. So we were not restricted to the brain. And essentially the idea was to deprive animals of sleep and try to do it with different methods of that, of suppressing sleep, of sleep deprivation. Yeah. And then look all over the bodies for signs of damage. Hmm. And so uh, this is the work carried out primarily by uh, postdocs in my lab, Alex Vaccaro and uh, Josef Kaplan-Dor. Hmm. And what they did is um, they prevented flies from sleeping. Uh, we then saw that this indeed uh, decreases their lifespan severely. Yeah. Their lifespan in half, let's say, if you suppress 90% of sleep or if you percent prevent all sleep, cuts it down in quarter mm -hmm. and preceding these preceding this this increase in mortality um they found that there's a really um, a dramatic increase in reactive oxygen species and we talk we can talk about what these are but these molecules reactive oxygen species yeah in the gut specifically of flies mm -hmm. and so this accumulation preceded death um in flies, um, regardless of the method with which we suppress sleep. So what are the, some examples of ROS? Examples of ROS? Yeah. So hydrogen peroxide, hmm. H2O2, is an example of ROS. That's a relatively um, mild ROS, or um, superoxide is another one. So what, what ROS are, are the, the ROS stands for reactive oxygen species. Yeah. So these are derivatives of molecular oxygen so ox oxygen is a very reactive element right so it's a very chemically reactive element it loves electrons and that's why we use it in a lot of you know reactions um most notably you use it in the in the mitochondria in the electron transport chain where it's essentially a sink for electrons you electrically uh power production of atp mm. or your sort of energy cellular energy um, currency in the mitochondria, you electrically power this. And then what do you do with those electrons at the end? Oxygen takes them up because it's, it really loves electrons. But in the process of doing that, it gets converted into an even more reactive molecule, hmm. reactive oxygen species, which then needs to be quickly neutralized in the cell. But ROS are made in, in other processes. They're not just made in the mitochondria. They're made, um, for example, in the gut, in particular, they're used for normal physiological processes. Hmm. So they're made, for example, to control the levels of bacteria uh, in the gut and also to control turnover of cells in the gut, which, which actually do need to be turned over every few days. Oxidative stress, um, I know that uh, it has been implicated in many different things, including uh, Alzheimer's disease, oxidative stress in the brain. Mm -hmm. uh, this is oxidative stress in the gut, mm -hmm. and uh, and and you are drawing a, a specific connection between uh, lack of sleep and the production of ROS, and then uh, consequent uh, oxidative stress, and uh, and the implication is that severe oxidative stress, prolonged oxidative stress, uh, leads to leads to death, at least in the fry experiment. Yeah, so in the gut, um, uh, 
this accumulation of rust in the gut um, was followed by oxidative stress. Like you said, and basically what oxidative stress is, is, is it's oxidation yeah. of, um, of cellular macromolecules. And what, what oxidation is, it's essentially loss of electrons. So you can imagine these, these reactive oxygen species, the reason why they're so incredibly reactive, the free radical forms of, of ROS are the, the most um, active ones. And they, what they have is in their outer uh, most orbital or the valence orbital, uh, where electrons that engage in chemical reactions are, they have unpaired electrons. So electrons are stable if they're paired, if you have pairs of electrons, if you have unpaired electrons, they're very, uh, the, the, it makes the element unstable. And so then they try to steal electrons from other molecules like you know, cellular macromolecules like DNA or proteins or lipids in order to, to stabilize themselves. And in the process of doing that, they destabilize the, the target molecules and that's oxidation. And essentially it's like rusting of, of metal or, you know, mm. your, the, like apple turning brown when you cut it, that's, that's oxidation. And so you essentially destroy cellular macromolecules, which can lead to death. And so what we found is that um, actually was proposed uh, many years ago and by many people, it has been put forward the idea that sleep loss leads to oxidative stress, that this could be the consequence, kind of a major consequence of, of sleep loss. And that this was never um, experimentally shown that that's actually what really causes the, the, the demise of the animals. Um, but also it was claimed that this happens in the brain it was, or it was thought that this happens in the brain. And we yeah. couldn't really see ex excessive oxidation, at least with the methods that we use, where we, we saw it very easily in the gut, we could not see that in the brain. And in fact, different studies have shown that um, the level of antioxidant or protective anti-ROS hmm. sort of enzymes goes up in the nervous system during sleep loss. And actually, this makes sense in a way that, um, in a sense that neurons cannot be replaced the way that, right. that cells in the gut can. And probably it's really, really important to, um, to protect neurons from oxidation. Um, we actually now, we, we, so we, we think we know the mechanism that leads to ROS uh, production in the gut, mm. um, but you know, we're still not sure of the details, but what, we, but what we do know is that if we prevent ROS accumulation in the gut of flies, either yeah. by um, giving them antioxidant compounds orally. And so what some of these antioxidant compounds are, essentially it's like, a, uh, you know, they have a bag of extra electrons that they can give to rocks, <laughs> you know, to quench <laughs> their thirst for electrons uh, <laughs> so that they don't have to uh, attack, you know, cellular molecules. And so if right. you do that, you prevent or you neutralize rocks and animals can survive, have fully normal lifespans without sleep. Or if we genetically uh, target expression of antioxidant enzymes specifically mm. to the gut, we can do the same. So this is in flies, right? And so in flies, yeah. we use three different methods of suppressing sleep. Um, and we saw ROS. And then we, what we wanted, so that was really important for us because we didn't want, you know, whatever we see to be constrained by, by any um, methodological specifics. And then we wanted to know whether this is a conserved phenomenon. Um, so excess ROS, uh, the excess ROS very simplistically, Dragana, relates to cellular damage and ultimately death. 
Yes, access ROS. Yeah, and that is really yeah. the key. So before we started this study, you know, I didn't really know much about ROS, and I thought of them as bad molecules, right? Because you yeah. kind of, you, you know, you, you hear free radicals, oxidants, antioxidants, etc. But it turns out that they're actually really important signaling molecules at low levels. Okay, mm -hmm. so they're important. They do important things in the cell. Um, and you have in place the, these uh, various, actually, um, antioxidant systems that prevent ROS levels from in increasing to abnormally high or too high levels. And then if this is disrupted is when, when problems arise, when molecules in the cell get damaged and when cells um, can die, essentially you, um, you induce um, cell death. So, so I mean, the, the numbers are quite striking, right? So 100% uh, sleep loss, Mm -hmm. almost uh, goes to about a quarter mm -hmm. of the of the lifespan mm -hmm. for the fly and you found similar numbers in mice models too so what we found so we only did sleep deprivation for five days in the mouse yeah. so that's yeah. what we were allowed to do essentially what our protocol allowed us to do um mm. and so we we didn't deprive them until that okay we just deprived them for five days but yeah that was plenty enough to see ross accumulation in the gut so what we did again, just like what we did in flies, is we deprived mice of sleep and then we um, dissected their various organs and we looked at the level of oxidation or reactive oxygen species. And what we saw again is that there was a, a huge increase in the small intestine and in the large intestine to a lesser degree. It was in, in both of those tissues, in small and the large intestine, large intestine being also known as colon, um, but it was it was particularly obvious in in the small intestine, and we could not see again anything similar in any of the other organs, at least at that time. So, after two days of, of sleep loss, you see reactive oxygen species going up, and after five days, you see that there is actually oxidation or the consequence of ROS or the the damage of of macromolecules in the gut. Mm. Do we have any uh, any human data, Dragana, on this on this dimension? So, um, what I can say is that uh, I mean, not exactly like this. So we we couldn't yeah. study uh, humans yet. We're trying to come up with some ways to indirectly measure level of, of oxidation to have some reporters of oxidation. Um, you yeah. know, it would be great if we could have something in like some fecal markers, right? Um, mm. But what we know is that people which have uh, inflammatory bowel diseases, they actually tend to have inflammation bouts if they don't mm. sleep, um, if they, if they uh, uh, don't sleep. So, uh, and also there is actually a quite good correlation between disturbed sleep and increased incidence of um, colorectal cancers. Mm. Uh, so the, um, so this is uh, specifically sleep loss. Uh, what happens if you just disrupt the rhythm? Circadian rhythm um, or the yeah. rhythm of sleep. Um, right. So you mean like if you allow animals to sleep uh, like normal amount, but not at the right time or something like that? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. so we yeah. haven't done that. It's something we want to do. You could also ask what happens if you change the quality of sleep, right? If you allow them to sleep right. the same amount of time, but then they don't sleep as deeply or something like that. And we haven't done that yet. But I'll tell you that um, there is evidence, again, from, from humans that disruption of circadian rhythms or even timing of sleep 
um, has bad health consequences, such as increasing um, the chance of, of colorectal cancer and um, breast cancer, for example. Uh, because people, for example, they work in shift work, right? They, they do studies on, on shift workers and they see this, um, this problem. So often, you know, people that, that work in shifts, they probably tend to also not sleep the same amount. I'm not sure, you know, how well that is controlled, but there is evidence that even sleeping at the wrong time uh, is not going to give you the same protective benefit as, as sleeping, um, you know, at, at night. Hmm. So uh, you have some evidence that this could be reversed with antioxidants, right? So uh, I, I'm just uh, speculating here. So I know vitamin C is an antioxidant. Mm -hmm. So people who are uh, either have disrupted uh, sleep rhythms or for some some other reason, um, would would it be uh, more preferable for them to, to to have antioxidants? So that is a really good question, and and I would say that yes, under the right circumstances. So so what I mean by that is that as we alluded to earlier, antioxidants. Uh, I mean, sorry, ROS. Um, yeah. are not all bad. They're actually protective right. uh, molecules in, in, uh, at certain concentrations. And we actually, um, there, there's a possibility, some of our data suggests that perhaps the initial increase in ROS that is seen with sleep loss might be for protective purposes. Uh, and because hmm. in this case, it's, a, it's sustained sleep suppression, that you go from beneficial to harmful um, regimen. So what I mean is that, or what this suggests then is that yes, antioxidants would be uh, beneficial, but you want to know when exactly to take them. And that's why we would like to have a system where we um, can actually monitor directly ROS levels. And when they're hmm. going up at the right time, you you know would, would probably benefit from, from antioxidants. So, so you need to know when and how much. Exactly. So, if at all, exactly. it, it has to be some sort of, yeah, sustainable release. Exactly. Uh, this actually, release. You know, explains yeah. Probably yeah. a lot of the 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 literature. The, you know, people working on antioxidant systems. It's really interesting because there's a lot of contradicting data. You know, in some study, antioxidants mm. are are um, shown to be extremely um, valuable, and in others other studies, people see no effect. So what we conclude is... But it could also have, bad, have effects, bad effects, right? Exactly. That's something that... Yeah. And we actually yeah. saw that, that in certain cases, if we give... Um, so for example, it mattered, you know, how severe the deprivation is. So, so when do you want to start hmm. giving antioxidants? Because in some cases, if the deprivation is mild and you start giving a lot of antioxidants and you start giving them early, um, that could actually have hmm. a bad effect. Okay, so... Um, some of, again, some of these ROS might be made for protective reasons at first. And then because we're, again, we're artificially pushing the system too far, then they accumulate mm. uh, way too high. But the fact is that, you know, none of us really know how much, when you, how much sleep you're losing and what the damage to your body is. It's also interesting, I would say that people often say, you know, I'm fine, I need only four hours of sleep, I'm okay. The fact <laughs> is, you know, what they mean yeah. is, they feel fine sort of mentally. Let's say they even feel fine. You don't feel um, 
you know, the need to sleep. But what we show is that those things can be separated. Your sort of feeling of sleepiness or not can be separated from the need of your body for sleep. Right, right. Yeah, and and uh, like like your data shows, uh, I think you know the system is so finely tuned that it needs some level of ROS for it to for it to function. But if it exceeds the threshold, it has a lot of negative effects. So it, it is sort of very finely tuned. Um, and so any intervention, um, especially with antioxidants, have to be. <laughs> have to be titrated to, to such precision for it to be yeah, really or at beneficial. least to you know to to a certain approximation in a certain range. So this is again, this is something that we yeah. would really love to do. Uh, what we would love to develop for the mammalian system is the ability to monitor uh, ROS levels in the gut, and then based on that, have you know develop therapies, interventions, which I think is, you know, is possible. I mean, honestly, when we saw the results for flies, it took us a while to, to believe uh, these fly results because it was crazy. You know, before we started a study, I don't think we ever would have predicted that, that we would find what we found um, and that we would be able to, you know, once yeah. we saw those ROS, it was just so striking. And then the next step was really to show, is this just some crazy good correlation or is it actually causative and once we you know if it was causative the prediction would be that neutralizing ROS could extend lifespan and so intellectually we knew this but we still couldn't believe it and then when we saw the results it was just mm. it was very shocking so the antioxidants we screened uh, 53 compounds and 11 of them were successful yeah. at uh, preventing ROS and extending survival mm. and the ones those compounds that were successful were the ones that were able to neutralize ROS. So not all um, antioxidants are, are able to function, um, function in the system. And I would say that, you know, coming up with some way, some intervention like this would actually be, I think, enormously valuable because so many of us are sleep deprived. And right now, you know, the, the products that exist for people, sleep related things are things designed to put you to sleep or to help you sleep, right? But not everybody has that problem. It's not like everybody doesn't sleep because they're not able to sleep biologically, right? If you're caring for a young child, for example, or whatever, you're going to be losing sleep no matter what. Mm -hmm. So it would be really good to, um, to have something that, you know, you could take and to mitigate some of these bad, bad effects of sleep loss. That's the dream. <laughs> Do you have a hypothesis why 11 of those 53, only 11 of those 53 work? Is there any commonality so, among the 11? We didn't really see anything obvious. And, and, you know, we did try for all of these compounds. We tried several different concentrations, but it's possible that some for some of these that didn't work, that we just didn't find the right dose, you know, or we should mm. dig into that a little bit more maybe to think of that we didn't see anything super obvious as to why some of them work or not uh, for some experiments with the you know enzymes expression of enzymes we have an indicate that that led us to sort of the conclusion that most likely the levels of ROS are intracellular and not something that's secreted outside of the cell um, mm. but I'm not yet sure about, about the different antioxidants yeah, so so in conclusion, Ragana, so where do you want to take this? Uh, you know, I was thinking about sleep disruption 
is a common phenomenon in the modern mm-hmm. context, right? Um, night shifts, uh, pilots, healthcare workers. I mean, you can you can have a, a long mm-hmm. list of uh, people who are who have disruption uh, from a natural mm-hmm. rhythm of sleep. Um, and so, so two questions. One is, you know, is it creating problems for them? And number two, if it is. Is there an intervention that might be optimum? Is that a direction yeah. you want to so you want to take a step? So want to yeah. come up with some ways of, of um, you know, mitigating damage in humans. So right now we're doing this in mice, right? So we did it with flies in mice. We saw that that frost accumulate, but now we're doing a longer deprivation protocol in mice, um, yeah. sort of to see how this influences their health, and then we're going to try to reverse it by antioxidant interventions but like i said the dream would be to find some sort of non-invasive way of gathering information from the gut okay so uh reporters mm-hmm. in the gut mm-hmm. they would monitor levels of ROS, and then ideally you would you could couple that with some delivery system that would be uh triggered at a certain threshold of ROS. so we're thinking about that and then in terms of you know the the so that's kind of a practical thing but we also want to understand the biology itself so what is it that triggers rust production when sleep is low and then how is it that increased rust and increased oxidation of the gut leads to leads to death yeah i, I wondered uh Dragana, uric acid is also a powerful antioxidant and so if you have excess rust I wondered if, if your uric acid production is lower I or anything like know. that. I don't know, actually. But yeah. I'll say that one of the interesting, um, yeah. uh, sort of interesting antioxidants that worked in our, for us, worked very well in preventing that uh, in flies was melatonin. And so melatonin in flies hmm. is not really known to, uh, it doesn't uh, influence, as far as we know, sleep and, and circadian rhythms. And this is actually something important that I forgot to say. With those antioxidant interventions that were um, capable of suppressing lethality, none of them actually increased sleep. So animals were still sleep deprived and, and they were able to. So hmm. but melatonin is interesting because, you know, we usually think of it as related, as, as sort of promoting sleep, but actually um, its levels are, way higher in the gut than they are in in the brain okay so there's a lot of melatonin in the mm. gut and it turns out the melatonin is actually a very potent antioxidant so it's interesting to think about that mm. what its function in the gut is and finally i want to say that you know the so what we i think we showed pretty well what happens when animals are prevented from sleeping and then this can uh, trigger that but we don't know yet what the normal dynamics of ROS are if any in the gut yeah 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 and and it's i guess there'll be some some variation in it uh, obviously it's different for different animals um and it, it could also be related to any sort of diseases the animal might have uh, as well, yeah. right you mean as a, that it could lead to diseases or that it might be uh it, it might be an after effect of you know any kind of disease the animal yes. is already so suffering diseases, from. So diseases, yeah, they they sleep sleep and disease. You know they have the, it is a sort of a, a two, you know it goes both ways. The diseases disturb sleep. Sleep leads to many diseases, and then yeah, that can get worse. Yeah, I mean it's, it's an amazing thing. You know you you're losing no not losing really, but <laughs> you're taking off eight to ten hours a day. 
And uh, if that did not have any negative effects, you could yes. have done a lot more work. Yes, but clearly it's something that, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of, uh, th this is actually kind of useful is to think, you know, what sleep does, but to think in sort of more specific terms, because, you know, maybe this is why people argue, okay, sleep is required for memory, it's required for this, for that, if we're trying to think of just, of sleep just having one function, but it clearly doesn't, right? right? If it, it, it evolved over, you know, millions of years of hundreds of millions of years of, of animal evolution, and we're pretty sure that to date has many many functions such as being required for memory consolidation, et cetera. But again, there has to be something very mm. basic about it that's tied to its, you know, requirement for survival. Um, and that's really what, what we're after. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. You know, early homo sapiens, uh, good sleepers might have been eaten by nocturnal animals. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> perhaps that is a... A selection effect in other direction, yeah, but we don't see and, it. Yeah, uh, and you know that's also interesting. And people speculate. Basically, if you were, th this is kind of a way to uh, sort of create niches for prey and predator to not deplete the source of food, you know, too fast. So kind of everybody has to sleep <laughs> at at a at a certain time, you know. So mm -hmm. yeah, in a way you're more vulnerable. Right. But actually, from an, another study that that we did um, in my lab that hasn't been published yet where we actually found, so this, you know, this study that we discussed, we see this effect in the gut. We have a study now that's not published yet where we show that gut actually controls the, the depth of sleep. Um, and, you know, mm. so if you have a protein rich meal, you actually can go into deeper sleep yeah. due to signaling from, from the gut to the brain. And so I used to say that, you know, the same mm. thing that you said and, you know, when you're sleeping, you're vulnerable, etc. But I actually came to think now that you're actually potentially much safer if you're sleeping. If you don't need to uh, go look for food, if you just had a good meal and you don't have to go mm. looking for food, mm. you're probably better off hiding somewhere and sleeping than you are, you know, running <laughs> across the field and, and trying to find some food. Yes. Yeah, so, so in conclusion, I want to ask one more question, Ragana. Did, did you find any effects of the microbiome no, in this process? No, but we haven't really um, looked. So, so the closest we came to that is trying to, with a, one experiment where we tried to give flies antibiotics and see if this would do anything, and it did not yeah. have any rescuing effect. But that's, you know, neither here nor there. Um, I would say we just don't know. We, we don't know at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. This is thank exciting, you. exciting research. Thank you so much. <laughs> and uh, thanks so much. Yeah. For spending thank time so with me on a weekend. Thank you. Bye. Sure. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.